You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. start this morning by talking about the importance of return on investment, as one does when they come to church. Now, return on investment refers to the amount of money that you make that can be directly tied to an expense or a series of expenses that are invested. So for instance, do you know that in 1980, the year I was born, if my parents had invested just $1,000, which is no small sum, but it's in the scheme of things, not that much. If they would have just invested $1,000 in Apple stock, that investment would currently be worth over $1.2 million. Now, my mom is coming to visit this week, and I plan to have a talk with her about why they did not make that investment. But to be honest, um, I'm not even sure I have a basic understanding of the economy. I don't know much about finance. People talk about portfolios, and I'm like, isn't that you carry art in that, don't you? And so I'm not a finance guy, but even I know that if you invest $1,000 and you make $1.2 million, you made a very, very good investment. But the truth is, money is far from the only thing that you and I invest in life. We invest an immense amount of time and energy and emotion and thought and strength in an almost countless number of relationships and tasks and activities. And so if you really think about it, there's probably little that is more discouraging than investing deeply in something that does not pay out an appropriate return. If you've ever had that experience in any way where you invested time, energy, emotion, effort, thought in something that did not pay out any kind of real return for you, that's a very disappointing place to be. So a few years ago, I started to be increasingly burdened by how many pastors have been leaving the ministry as their vocation. So pre-COVID, if you don't know this, close to 1,500 pastors a month leave their positions. And that was pre-COVID. We're still trying to figure out and to understand where we are post-COVID, but all signs point to those numbers being far worse. In fact, Barna, the Barna Group just finished a study, and 41% of pastors reported considered, considering quitting ministry as their vocation in just the past 12 months. So it's not great. And so a few years ago, I was out in the middle of nowhere on a prayer retreat, and I was thinking about a conversation I had just had with yet another pastor friend who had made the decision to leave ministry as their vocation. And so as I was thinking about that and praying about that, the Holy Spirit brought to mind Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4.7. So at the end of a long and fruitful ministry, this is one of the, toward the end of Paul's life that he wrote this, but Paul reflects on all that he had done in his life, in his ministry, and he says this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So I was thinking about all of these friends that I've had that have had to step away from ministry, and I could not stop thinking about that one phrase where Paul says, I have finished the race. And that word finished is the Greek word teleo. And it struck me that an increasing number of pastors would not be able to write those words. And so my idea was I was going to start a coaching and care ministry in addition to pastoring uh, formation, and we were going to call this Telio. and the whole point of it was to help pastors actually enjoy ministry for the long haul. 
Now, I, I spent all of this time thinking about how this could work, and I wrote down all my ideas. The Borns were kind enough. They put together a simple logo. Pastor Tyler built a website and helped me shoot video. So all of this time, all of this energy invested in this, and guess what came out of it? I had one conversation with one pastor who decided after that one conversation, apparently, he did not want to talk to me again. I know. That's how I felt, too. Now, all joking aside, I've had a tremendous number of conversations with pastors over the last few years that are struggling and hurting, but this whole idea that so much time and effort was put into really just came to nothing. And I got to tell you, for a while, I was pretty discouraged. Why? Because there is little that is more discouraging than investing deeply in something that does not pay an appropriate return. Now, here's why I bring that up this morning. This morning, we're going to sit with yet another story of Jesus talking about his favorite topic, which is the kingdom. And as we continue to see, the kingdom is costly. It was costly for Jesus, and it is costly for us. And as we discussed last week, sometimes we find ourselves in this space between the already and the not yet, which we talked about last week, so if you missed that message, go back and listen to that. But we find ourselves in this space between the already and not yet, and we find ourselves wondering, man, is this really worth it? Being a follower of Jesus has always been hard. Jesus predicted, as we saw last week, that it would be hard for us. But I would argue that it has grown increasingly complicated in our own day. This is a complicated time to try to be a follower of Jesus and to know how to navigate the waters that we find ourselves in. So it's always been hard, but it's increasingly complicated. And so sometimes we are left to wonder, is this worth it? And so as we look at this story from Jesus, here's how this story would answer that question. Jesus is going to tell us this, the kingdom is worth whatever it costs. He's going to give us two stories this morning. Very brief, but very, very clear. The kingdom is worth whatever it costs. And so this morning, we are going to look at the story of the treasure and the pearl. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, why don't you open up to Matthew 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, all the scripture is going to be up on the screen. But we're going to look at Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. And if you are unfamiliar with how Matthew 13 starts, it starts like this. Jesus wakes up. He leaves the house where he's been staying. He goes and he sits on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And such large crowds turn up to see him that he has to get into a boat and push back just enough to be able to get some space. And then he proceeds to tell a a series of stories, all in some way connected to this subject of the kingdom of God. And so verses 44 to 46, actually in just these three verses, have two very short stories stressing the same truth both times, that the kingdom is worth whatever it costs. So look with me at verse 44, and let's jump in. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has, and he buys that field. All right, so this first story pictures a man presumably working in a field that belonged to someone else. And so as he works the ground, he comes upon this great treasure. And even though this story is a work of fiction by Jesus, it describes what was a very common first century practice. See, people were prone to protect their items of great value by burying them in the ground. And people still do some version of this. I believe both my dad and Tammy's dad both have like 
cash and coins and who knows what just hidden all over their homes. I don't know if they're pirates. I don't know who has coins, but both of our dads just like really got into coins and they're hidden. And so I can't wait till we have to sort that mess out and go on a treasure hunt while grieving the loss of our parents at some point. <clears throat> but, but for instance, so this was very, very common in the first century, and actually not that long ago, a jar that was buried in the ground since the 11th century BC was just discovered, and it had over 20 pounds of silver within it. And so if you were this guy, fi finding a treasure like Jesus describes here would have been the equivalent to winning the lottery in the ancient world. And so this man... In this story, he is understandably filled with joy upon finding this treasure. He knows in this moment his entire life has changed. And so in his joy, he reburies the treasure, and then he rushes out. He sells everything he has so that he can buy this field all so that he can then own and possess this great treasure. Now, you might read that and, and think like, isn't that a little slimy? Like if you think about it, that this guy... He, he goes out and he, he finds a treasure in a field that belongs to someone else, and then he buys that field so that he can have the treasure that the original owner doesn't even know exists. So on the one hand, you read that and you're like, suspect at best. But the truth is, uh, under rabbinic regulations, the owner of a piece of land like this would not have owned the treasure because he had not taken possession of it. Rabbis called this lifting so because the, uh, the original owner had not lifted it, this man was well within his legal rights to buy the field and to take possession of this trailer, or trailer, treasure. <laughs> Never has a trailer been a treasure, okay? <laughs> False, yeah, it's true. When you're a portable church, it's a, it's a treasure, well, especially when they tow it for no good reason, and you've got to go get it. But regardless, Jesus' intent is to focus on this man's response to finding such a valuable treasure. He literally sold everything he had because it meant gaining something of greater value to him. And just to be sure that we don't miss the point, Jesus tells a second similar story. Look at verse 45. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and again, he sold everything he had and he bought it. So, this merchant in the second story is in search of fine pearls. Now, one commentator uh, that I read this week says this, quote, when translations mention the word pearl, the Hebrew word actually, actually refers to jewels in general, or, and I found this interesting, or to coral. He goes on and says, pearls were regarded as the most valuable objects in existence, so they became a figure of speech for something of supreme worth, end quote. So again, Jesus his emphasis is on the merchant's response to finding a pearl of such great value. He too sold everything, and then he bought that pearl. Now, some of the teaching of Jesus, we need to have the humility and the honesty to acknowledge this. Some of the teaching of Jesus can be very confusing. It is very common to read something that Jesus says and be like, yeah, what? That was a very common response to people who heard him in the first century during his earthly ministry. So some of his teaching can be very confusing. I would argue this is not one of those cases. It would seem that the meaning of Jesus' story here is quite evident. And the meaning that he's trying to convey is that the kingdom is worth whatever it would cost us to be able to obtain it. And that being said, I do believe that this story, even though it's simple and short and clear, 
I think that it demands at least three questions from us. This entire story, remember, is about the value of the kingdom. So think about these three questions. Question number one is this. What is the kingdom of heaven? That's a pretty important question. You know that the Greek word that we translate as kingdom appears 162 times in the New Testament. And many of those times, we find that word in the very mouth of Jesus. In fact, when Matthew summarizes the primary message of Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry in chapter 4, verse 17, he says this. He says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, and here's the essence of Jesus' message in all of these different ways. He said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So, because of how frequently we hear Jesus speaking about it, This entire story that we would read this morning is all about this. It's important that we understand what exactly is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those two terms can be used synonymously. Well, in his excellent book, Kingdom Conspiracy, the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight writes that when we read the word kingdom, quote, it refers to a people, to a people ruled, and to a people ruled by a king. He goes on and says, there are then at least three elements of the word kingdom. Kingdom refers to a people governed by a king, end quote. So here's how I would define when we read about the kingdom of God in the New Testament, here's what should come into our minds. The kingdom is present anywhere that the people of God are living under the loving reign of God. So the kingdom of God is present anywhere the people of God live under the loving reign of God. Now, here's why that matters. It reminds us that not only is Jesus our Savior, and not only is Jesus our healer, and not only is Jesus our friend. He is all of those things. He is our Savior. He is our healer. He is our friend. And he is also our king. And that means that he is the authoritative voice in our lives. And so his voice takes authoritative precedent over any and all other voices. And it's important for us to see that because it helps us understand why the modern church is such a dumpster fire. The reason that the modern church is such a mess is that we have given precedence to the voices of political pundits, media personalities, and even pastors over the voice of Jesus, our true king. The only time any other voice should carry any authority in our lives is when it is in line with what Jesus has said to us in his word. And so if we're going to be a people of the kingdom, it means we have to live subject to our king, Jesus. Now, because of this reality, a second question is warranted. Question number two is this, what is the value of the kingdom? What is the value of the kingdom? In these stories, Jesus compares the kingdom to two things of tremendous value. So what exactly makes his loving rule in our lives so valuable? Like, why would it be worth whatever it costs us to be able to receive the kingdom of God in our lives? Well, Jesus tells us in John 10, verses 10 through 11, Jesus says this, I have come so that they, and he's speaking about anyone who follows him, so he's speaking about us, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, notice Jesus tells us two things there. Number one, we learn about the nature of Jesus' rule. And the nature of Jesus' rule is sacrificial. And that's significant because some kings are selfish tyrants. 
And Jesus doesn't build his kingdom on the back of expendable subjects. He lays down his own life in order to preserve ours. And it's important that we understand the nature of his reign and rule in our lives because, and this I would say is a distinct challenge for Americans, we live in a country and we are a culture that literally was founded on a rebellion against authority. And so as a result, that's hard woven into our DNA as a people in our culture. We struggle with authority. And that's understandable. But when it comes to our relationship with God, when we bring that same tendency to our relationship with him, it becomes problematic. And so what can help us is to really spend time understanding the nature of Jesus' rule, that his rule is sacrificial and for our good. And we also learn that the aim of Jesus' reign in our lives is always abundant life. And so the reason that Jesus can say that the kingdom is worth whatever it costs us is because living under his loving reign in our lives is the only way that we experience the flourishing lives for which we were created. So the belonging, the significance, the purpose, the understanding, the security, the love, all of these things that we long for, all of that exists within the loving reign of Jesus in our lives. And that is why Jesus can say that the kingdom is worth whatever it costs us. Because everything that Jesus says and everything that he does in our lives is about helping us live up and into the true life for which we all long. But I want you to remember the stories that Jesus just told us. In order for the man to receive the treasure, in order for the merchant to receive the pearl, they had to part with what was currently in their hands. Which brings us to a very important third question. What is God inviting me to release in order to receive more of his kingdom? That's the question, ultimately, that Jesus is leading to through these stories. What is he inviting us to release in order to receive more of his kingdom? The 6th century Bishop Augustine once said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. See, we all hold things that we resist opening our hands and releasing. And we resist for a number of different reasons. It can be related to fear or comfort or control, but we resist nonetheless. And as a result of that resistance, which is often unconscious, we are forfeiting a deeper experience of what Jesus called the abundant life. And so what might we be holding on to that would be causing us to forfeit a deeper experience of God's kingdom in our lives. Well, I have at least three things that come to mind for me. And again, we'll do some Q&A at the end. So if any point in here, questions come up for you practically about your own experience with this, then go ahead and text those in. But what might we be holding on to? I'll give you three things. Here's number one. We hold on to the past. Some of us cannot receive God's kingdom in the present because we are holding on to the past. Meaning... We all have parts of our past that are informing our present experience. And this is why every healing journey that a person goes on demands that we go back through these past experiences. It's because they still inform our present. See, we often start a healing journey in our lives because our present experience has become unbearable for some reason. 
and, and I've seen that in my own life, I've seen it in the lives of other people, our current experience has to get so bad that we are willing to embrace the discomfort of working through the healing process because where we've been is just not going to be conducive to where we want to go. And so healing demands so much more than solving problems in the present. The dysfunctional ways that we've all learned to behave are the direct result of experiences that we've had in the past, which means we have to identify, we have to understand, and we have to seek healing in all of those areas. And the choice to resist that journey is a choice to hold on to the past. And so if you're holding on to the past, you can't receive the kingdom in the present. So some of us might be holding on to the past. Others of us, secondly, might be holding on to our own plan. Our own plan. Isaiah 55, 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. Now, here's why that's helpful for us. We all have our own plan, or we all have our own expectations for how our lives should go, which means we have a plan for relationships. We have a plan oftentimes for our education. We have plans for our career, for a job, for achievements that we want to experience. Now, if your experience has been anything at all like my experience, life rarely goes according to that plan. There are so many things that just go differently than what we think. And when that happens, we have two choices. When life does not go according to your plan, choice number one is that you can kick and scream about it. And what that often looks like is when life doesn't go according to our plan, emotionally what we experience is deep disappointment. We might be angry and frustrated, but beneath that anger and frustration is usually this sadness that comes with disappointment. I wanted this to go differently than how it went. And when we are disappointed, oftentimes we fight for control. Okay, well, it didn't go the way I wanted the first go-round, but I'm going to make it go the way I wanted the second go-round. And then when that doesn't happen, we end up in a place of deep resentment. So that's one way. Sounds really attractive, doesn't it? We can kick and scream. Or when life does not go according to our plan, we can look for God's plan in the disruption of our own. God is always doing something, even when our plans don't go the way that we want. And so we have an opportunity to look for God's plan in the disruption of our own. Now that first response of kicking and screaming, it always means that we forfeit a deeper experience of God's kingdom, but the latter enables it. And so if you're holding on to your own plan, you can't receive God's kingdom plan for you. So some of us are holding on to the past, Others of us hold on to our own plan. And then finally, we hold on to unhealthy patterns. Now again, because of our personalities, our experiences, the influences that have been a part of our life, we all have patterns of behavior. Every single one of us does. We have ways, patterns of, of how we respond when certain things happen, ways that we respond in relationship. We all have ways that we cope with difficulty and hardship. We all have ways that we seek to soothe discomfort. So we all have patterns of behavior. Now, some of those patterns are not healthy. But even though they're not healthy, they are familiar. And oftentimes, familiarity feels secure even if something's unhealthy. And so sometimes we don't trust that if we were to open our hands and release an unhealthy pattern, that Jesus can be trusted to give us something better. But if we're holding on 
these unhealthy patterns in life, we can't receive the healing life that Jesus longs to bring. So let's just briefly revisit where we've been. The kingdom of God is the people of God living under the reign of God. And this kingdom, while it is costly, is worth whatever it costs because living under the loving reign of God is the only way we experience the lives for which we were created. And so the love, the belonging, the understanding, the security, the significance, and the purpose for which we all long, all of that is held out to us as we continue to learn to embrace the kingdom of God in our midst. The kingdom is worth whatever it costs. The question is, what is God inviting us, what is God inviting you to release in order to receive more of his kingdom? Maybe there is some aspect of your past. Maybe life has just not gone according to your plan. Welcome, me too. Ten years ago, I never would have thought, you know where I'm going to be in ten years? Sitting on a tiny little stool in a little corner in Salt Lake City, Utah. I never would have thought that, but here we are, and this has been the place of the greatest work of healing in my life. So maybe there is a plan of ours that we need to release. Maybe there are patterns of behavior that have become normative and familiar to us, but we can even now hear the Spirit of God inviting us to open our hands and to trust Him with those things. What is God inviting you to release in order to receive more of his kingdom? Let me pray for us, and then I'll give us just a second to sit with that question. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, if we're going to truly take you at your word, you say that your kingdom is worth whatever it would cost us. And if I'm honest, and my guess is I'm not the only one in this, I struggle to believe that's true because I love so many of the things that I hold on to so tightly and I trust those things, sometimes to the exclusion of being willing to trust you. And so, Lord, when this happens in my life, when this happens in our lives, we need your grace and your mercy to give us the courage and the trust, the humility and the faith to just simply open our hands And so, Holy Spirit, as we sit with this question, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would help us to hear where you're inviting us to release something so that we can receive more of your kingdom. So, Lord, would you speak to us and allow us to hear you in Jesus' name.